Jesus the Christ by James E. Talmadge Read by Bradley Ross The text of this book is available from Project Gutenberg at gutenberg.org Chapter 14 Continuation of Our Lord's Ministry in Galilee A Leper Made Clean Early in the morning, following that eventful Sabbath in Capernaum, our Lord arose a great while before day, and went in quest of seclusion beyond the town. In a solitary place he gave himself to prayer, thus demonstrating the fact that, Messiah though he was, he was profoundly conscious of his dependence upon the Father, whose work he had come to do. Simon Peter and other disciples found the place of his retirement, and told him of the eager crowds who sought him. Soon the people gathered about him, and urged that he remain with them. But he said unto them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for therefore am I sent. And to the disciples he said, Let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also, for therefore came I forth. Thence he departed, accompanied by the few whom he had already closely associated with himself, and ministered in many towns of Galilee, preaching in the synagogues, healing the sick, and casting out devils. Among the afflicted seeking the aid that he alone could give came a leper who knelt before him, or bowed with his face to the ground, and humbly professed his faith, saying, If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. The petition implied in the words of this poor creature was pathetic. The confidence he expressed is inspiring. The question in his mind was not, Can Jesus heal me? But will he heal me? In compassionate mercy, Jesus laid his hand upon the sufferer, unclean though he was, both ceremonially and physically, for leprosy is a loathsome affliction, and we know that this man was far advanced in the disease, since we are told that he was full of leprosy. Then the Lord said, I will be thou clean. The leper was immediately healed. Jesus instructed him to show himself to the priest and make the offerings prescribed in the law of Moses for such cases as his. In this instruction, we see that Christ had not come to destroy the law, but as he affirmed at another time, to fulfill it. And at this stage of his work, the fulfillment was incomplete. Moreover, had the legal requirements been disregarded in as serious a matter as that of restoring an outcast leper to the society of the community from which he had been debarred, priestly opposition, already waxing strong and threatening against Jesus, would have been augmented, and further hindrance to the Lord's work might have resulted. There was to be no delay in the man's compliance with the master's instruction. Jesus straightly charged him and forthwith sent him away. Furthermore, he explicitly directed the man to tell nobody of the manner of his healing. There was perhaps good reason for this injunction of silence, aside from the very general course of our Lord in discountenancing undesirable notoriety. For had word of the miracle preceded the man's appearing before the priest, obstacles might have been thrown in the way of his Levitical recognition as one who was clean. The man, however, could not keep the good word to himself, but went about and began to publish it much, and to blaze abroad the matter, insomuch 
that Jesus could no more openly enter into the city, but was without in desert places, and they came to him from every quarter. A Palsied Man Healed and Forgiven It must be borne in mind that no one of the evangelists attempts to give a detailed history of all the doings of Jesus, nor do all follow the same order in relating the incidents with which they associate the great lessons of the Master's teachings. There is much uncertainty as to the actual sequence of events. Some days after the healing of the leper, Jesus was again in Capernaum. The details of his employment during the interval are not specified, but we may be sure that his work continued, for his characteristic occupation was that of going about doing good. His place of abode in Capernaum was well known, and word was soon noised about that he was in the house. A great throng gathered, so that there was no room to receive them, even the doorway was crowded, and later comers could not get near the master. To all who were within hearing, Jesus preached the gospel. A little party of four approached the house, bearing a litter or pallet on which lay a man afflicted with palsy, a species of paralysis which deprived the subject of the power of voluntary motion and usually of speech. The man was helpless. His friends, disappointed at finding themselves unable to reach Jesus because of the press, resorted to an unusual expedient which exhibited in an unmistakable way their faith in the Lord as one who could rebuke and stay disease, and their determination to seek the desired blessing at his hands. By some means, they carried the afflicted man to the flat roof of the house, probably by an outside stairway or by the use of a ladder, possibly by entering an adjoining house, ascending the stairs to its roof, and crossing therefrom to the house within which Jesus was teaching. They broke away part of the roof, making an opening, or enlarging that of the trapdoor, such as the houses of that place and time were usually provided with, and, to the surprise of the assembled crowd, they then let down through the tiling the portable couch upon which the palsied sufferer lay. Jesus was deeply impressed by the faith and works of those who had thus labored to place a helpless paralytic before him. Doubtless, too, he knew of the trusting faith in the heart of the sufferer, and looking compassionately upon the man, he said, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Among the people there assembled were scribes, Pharisees, and doctors of the law, not only representatives of the local synagogue, but some who had come from distant towns in Galilee, and some from Judea, and even from Jerusalem. The official class had opposed our Lord and his works on earlier occasions, and their presence in the house at this time boded further unfriendly criticism and possible obstruction. They heard the words spoken to the paralytic and were angered thereat. In their hearts, they accused Jesus of the awful offense of blasphemy, which consists, essentially, in claiming for human or demon power the prerogatives of God or in dishonoring God by ascribing to him attributes short of perfection. These unbelieving scholars, who incessantly wrote and talked of the coming of the Messiah, yet rejected him when he was there present, murmured in silence, saying to themselves, Who can forgive sins but God only? Jesus knew their inmost thoughts, and made reply thereto, saying, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? 
Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise, and take up thy bed and walk? And then, to emphasize and to put beyond question his possession of divine authority, he added, But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, he saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. The man arose, fully restored, and taking up the mattress upon which he had been brought, walked out before them. The amazement of the people was mingled with reverence, and many glorified God, of whose power they were witnesses. The incident demands our further study. According to one of the accounts, the Lord's first words to the afflicted one were, Son, be of good cheer, followed directly by the comforting and authoritative assurance, Thy sins be forgiven thee. The man was probably in a state of fear. He may have known that his ailment was the result of wicked indulgences. Nevertheless, though he may have considered the possibility of hearing only condemnation for his transgression, he had faith to be brought. In this man's condition, there was plainly a close connection between his past sins and his present affliction. And in this particular, his case is not unique. For we read that Christ admonished another whom he healed to sin no more, lest a worse thing befall him. We are not warranted, however, in assuming that all bodily ills are the result of culpable sin. And against such a conception stands the Lord's combined instruction and rebuke to those who, in the case of a man born blind, asked who had sinned, the man or his parents, to bring so grievous an affliction upon him. To which inquiry our Lord replied that the man's blindness was due neither to his own sin nor to that of his parents. In many instances, however, disease is the direct result of individual sin, Whatever may have been the measure of past offense on the part of the man suffering from palsy, Christ recognized his repentance, together with the faith that accompanied it. And it was the Lord's rightful prerogative to decide upon the man's fitness to receive remission of his sins and relief from his bodily affliction. The interrogative response of Jesus to the muttered criticism of the scribes, Pharisees, and doctors has been interpreted in many ways, he inquired which was easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise, and take up thy bed and walk. Is it not a rational explanation that, when spoken authoritatively by him, the two expressions were of allied meaning? The circumstance should have been a sufficient demonstration to all who heard that he, the Son of Man claimed and possessed the right and power to remit both physical and spiritual penalties, to heal the body of visible disease, and to purge the spirit of the no less real malady of sin. In the presence of people of all classes, Jesus thus openly asserted his divinity and affirmed the same by a miraculous manifestation of power. The charge of blasphemy which rabbinical critics formulated in their minds against the Christ, was not to end as a mental conception of theirs, nor to be nullified by our Lord's later remarks. It was through perjured testimony that he finally received unrighteous condemnation and was sent to his death. Already, in that house at Capernaum, 
the shadow of the cross had fallen athwart the course of his life. Publicans and Sinners From the house, Jesus repaired to the seaside, whither the people followed him. There he taught them again. At the close of his discourse, he walked farther and saw a man named Levi, one of the publicans, or official collectors of taxes, sitting at the custom house, where the tariff levied under Roman law had to be paid. This man was also known as Matthew, a name less distinctively Jewish than is Levi. He afterward became one of the twelve and the author of the first of the evangelical gospels. To him, Jesus said, Follow me. Matthew left his place and followed the Lord. Sometime later, the new disciple provided a great feast at his house in honor of the master, and other disciples were present. So obnoxious to the Jews was the power of Rome to which they were subject, that they regarded with aversion all officials in Roman employ. Particularly humiliating to them was the system of compulsory taxation, by which they, the people of Israel, had to pay tribute to an alien nation, which in their estimation was wholly pagan and heathen. Naturally, the collectors of these taxes were abhorred, and they, known as publicans, probably resented the discourteous treatment by inconsiderate enforcement of the tax requirements, and, as affirmed by historians, often inflicted unlawful extortion upon the people. If publicans in general were detested, we can readily understand how bitter would be the contempt in which the Jews would hold one of their own nation who had accepted appointment as such an official. In this unenviable status was Matthew when Jesus called him. The publicans formed a distinct social class, for from the community in general they were practically ostracized. All who associated with them were made to share in the popular odium, and publicans and sinners, became a common designation for the degraded caste. To Matthew's feast, many of his friends and some of his fellow officials were invited, so that the gathering was largely made up of these despised publicans and sinners. And to such an assemblage went Jesus with his disciples. The scribes and Pharisees could not let pass such an opportunity for fault-finding and caustic criticism. They hesitated to address themselves directly to Jesus, but of his disciples they asked in disdain, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? The master heard, and replied with edifying incisiveness, mingled with splendid irony. Citing one of the common aphorisms of the day, he said, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. To this he added, I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The hypercritical Pharisees were left to make their own application of the rejoinder, which some of them may have understood to mean that their self-righteousness was arraigned and their claims of superiority derided. Aside from the veiled sarcasm in the master's words, they ought to have perceived the wisdom enshrined in his answer and to have profited thereby. Is not the physician's place among the afflicted ones? Would he be justified in keeping aloof from the sick and the suffering? His profession is that of combating disease, preventing when possible, curing when necessary, to the full extent of his ability. If the festive assembly at Matthew's house really did comprise a number of sinners, 
was not the occasion one of rare opportunity for the ministrations of the physician of souls? The righteous need no call to repentance. But are the sinners to be left in sin? Because those who profess to be spiritual teachers will not condescend to extend a helping hand? The Old and the New Shortly after the entertainment provided by Matthew, the Pharisees were ready with another criticism, and in this they were associated with some of the Baptists' adherents. John was in prison, but many of those who had been drawn to his baptism and had professed discipleship to him still clung to his teachings and failed to see that the greater one of whom he had testified was then ministering amongst them. The Baptist had been a scrupulous observer of the law. His strict asceticism vied with the rigor of Pharisaic profession. His non-progressive disciples, now left without a leader, naturally fell in with the Pharisees. Some of John's disciples came to Jesus and questioned him concerning his seeming indifference in the matter of fasting. They propounded a plain question. Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but thy disciples fast not? To the friends of the now-imprisoned Baptist, our Lord's reply must have brought memories of their beloved leader's words when he had compared himself to the bridegroom's friend and had plainly told them who was the real bridegroom. Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bridechamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then shall they fast in those days. If the questioners were able to comprehend the true import of this reply, they could not fail to find therein an implied abrogation of purely ceremonial observances comprised in the code of rabbinical rules and the numerous traditions associated with the law. But to make the subject clearer to their biased minds, Jesus gave them illustrations, which may be classed as parabolic. No man also, said he, soweth a piece of new cloth on an old garment, else the new piece that filleth it up taketh away from the old, and the rent is made worse. And no man putteth new wine into old bottles, else the new wine doth burst the bottles, and the wine is spilled, and the bottles will be marred. But new wine must be put in new bottles." In such wise did our Lord proclaim the newness and completeness of his gospel. It was in no sense a patching up of Judaism. He had not come to mend old and torn garments. The cloth he provided was new, and to sew it on the old would be but to tear afresh the threadbare fabric and leave a more unsightly rent than at first. Or, to change the figure, new wine could not safely be entrusted to old bottles. The bottles here referred to were really bags made of the skins of animals, and of course they deteriorated with age, just as old leather splits or tears even under slight strain. So the old bottle skins would burst from the pressure of fermenting juice, and the good wine would be lost. The gospel taught by Christ was a new revelation, superseding the past and marking the fulfillment of the law. It was no mere addendum, nor was it a reenactment of past requirements. It embodied a new and an everlasting covenant. Attempts to patch the Judaistic robe of traditionalism with the new fabric of the covenant could result in nothing more sightly than a rending of the fabric.
the new wine of the gospel could not be held in the old, time-worn containers of mosaic libations. Judaism would be belittled and Christianity perverted by any such incongruous association. Fishers of Men It is improbable that the disciples who followed Jesus in the early months of his ministry had remained with him continuously down to the time now under consideration. We find that some of those who were later called to the apostleship were following their vocation as fishermen, even while Jesus was actively engaged as a teacher in their own neighborhood. One day, as the Lord stood by the lake or sea of Galilee, the people pressed about him in great numbers, eager to hear more of the wondrous words he was wont to speak. Near the place were two fishing boats drawn in upon the beach. The owners were close by, washing and mending their nets. One of the boats belonged to Simon Peter, who had already become identified with the master's work. This boat Jesus entered, and then asked Simon to thrust out a little from the land. Seating himself, as teachers of that time usually did in delivering discourses, the Lord preached from this floating pulpit to the multitude on shore. The subject of the address is not given us. When the sermon was ended, Jesus directed Simon to launch out into deep water and then let down the nets for a draft. Presumably, Andrew was with his brother, and possibly other assistants were in the boat. Simon replied to Jesus, Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word I will let down the net. It was soon filled with fishes. So great was the haul that the net began to break, and the busy fishermen signaled to those in the other boat to come to their assistance. The catch filled both boats so that they appeared to be in danger of sinking. Simon Peter was overcome with this new evidence of the master's power, and falling at the feet of Jesus, he exclaimed, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Jesus answered graciously and with promise, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. The occupants of the second boat were Zebedee and his two sons, James and John, the last named being he who with Andrew had left the Baptist to follow Jesus at the Jordan. Zebedee and his sons were partners with Simon in the fishing business. When the two boats were brought to land, the brothers, Simon and Andrew, and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, left their boats and accompanied Jesus. The foregoing treatment is based on Luke's record. The briefer and less circumstantial accounts given by Matthew and Mark omit the incident of the miraculous draft of fishes and emphasizes the calling of the fishermen. To Simon and Andrew, Jesus said, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. The contrast thus presented between their former vocation and their new calling is strikingly forceful. Theretofore, they had caught fish, and the fate of the fish was death. Thereafter, they were to draw men to a life eternal. To James and John, the call was no less definite, and they too left their all to follow the Master. Music